Good morning, church. Hi, right, good morning if you're watching this on the live stream. Glad you've tuned in and are joining us there as well. If you have your Bible with you this morning, hope you do. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 24. The intensity continues. That's what we started last week. The intensity of Jesus' teaching on the end times is going to continue. So last weekend we kicked off the fun by walking through the chart on the back of your sermon series handout. We walked through a chart that looked just like this. If you don't have this, I would encourage you to grab one out of the lobby. The front cover looks like this. It's a place for you to keep some of your notes and to write some things down, but more importantly, Lots of times I want us to refer back to this as it does help us. Last weekend as we started this journey, Jesus walked out of the Temple Mount. And as he left the Temple Mount, the disciples that were with him stopped and started pointing at the splendor and the magnificence and the beauty of the Temple. And in that moment, Jesus made a very, very startling comment, so much so that it got their heads spinning, and the, their heads just spun and spun and spun the whole time they journeyed until they got to the Mount of Olives. When they got to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sits down, the disciples approach him and begin to ask him some questions about what he just said. And it's at that moment that Jesus sort of begins this behind-the-scenes Bible study about what is to come at the end times. And the word we learned last week was eschatology, and it's the study of last things. It's the study of end times. And in order to understand what Jesus is saying, I ask you to look at your hermeneutic. What that is, is the way in which you interpret your Bible. And so I gave you four critical elements that we must look at, we must understand, if we're going to interpret our Bibles correctly. I spoke about how if we're going to do this, when we read our Bibles, we need to read our Bible literally. So we need to read our Bible grammatically. I said we need to read our Bible, um, when it comes down to it, I need us to read it historically and to read your Bible Christocentrically. And when we do this, the end times tend to come into focus more clearly. Now I use that phrase more clearly because I'm not saying there aren't some issues of eschatology that are debated issues, or where Jesus-loving people disagree. It, it is. It's one of those places that we just can disagree on, but it doesn't divide us. We go, I'm not totally sure. My point is, is that it helps bring the future into focus. And if you didn't get the chance to be with us last weekend, I would encourage you to go back and to, to watch on our YouTube channel, to go back and, and sort of watch uh, on our live stream, to go back and watch the app or, or Apple Podcasts, because it's really important for you to have a solid hermeneutic and to have a strong foundation as we walk through this mini-series entitled The Return I Never Knew. Otherwise, you're going to get left behind. Okay, come on, that's a cheesy church joke, come on. Come on, I teach you out for that one, right? You know, but really what's going to happen is we're going to be ignorant of the things we're discussing. And I wouldn't want that for us. So if you pull out your chart for a second, I want to do a brief refresher. And it all started out here on the left where we talked a little bit about eternity past. 
We talked about how Jesus is pre-existent. How some people think that Jesus showed up for the very first time in a manger in Bethlehem. No, no. (laughs) Jesus is pre-existent. Then we talked a little bit about Genesis 1-1, about the creation. We talked a little bit about the fall. We got to Genesis chapter 12, and we looked at this thing called the Abrahamic Covenant, where God promised Abraham, in Genesis chapter 12, land, seed, and blessing. And it's, that covenant is given, and it's very significant, and it has yet to be fulfilled. After that, we spoke about the decree that Daniel brought about in his book. The prophet Daniel said, listen, a decree is going to be issued from that time all the way until the Messiah rolls into Jerusalem. There's going to be 69 weeks of years. 69 times 7, 483 years. If you do the math, 173,880 days. So if we know when the decree happened, which we do, Nehemiah chapter 2, because it's recorded historically, and if we know when the Messiah rolls into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, which we do because it's recorded historically, you want to take a wild guess at how many days are between those two? 173,880 days. And then as you kind of journey along in your chart, you've got the cross, you've got the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1, you've got the giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and then that begins a gap, which is called the church age. And this church age ends, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the Lord will partially descend from heaven, and we're going to be caught up in the air with him in what's commonly known as the rapture. But it also says that something else will be removed at that same time. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the he that will be removed is the Holy Spirit. And he is taken out, and that begins what Daniel chapter 9 calls the 70th week, or what we would call the tribulation. We touched on that last week, and and we'll continue that in just a moment, but then you'll see on your chart in Revelation 19, we have the return of our king, and he's going to set up a kingdom in Jerusalem. He's going to reign and rule for a thousand years. How do we know that it's a thousand years? Because the Bible says it's a thousand years, and so that's what we read it for, and it says a thousand years. And as he rules for that thousand years, that fulfills Genesis chapter 12's covenant of land, seed, and blessing. And then, of course, at the end of that, Satan is judged. Jesus brings in the new heaven and the new earth, and the Bible finishes with the picture of eternity future. So what you're holding in your hand really is a a simple snapshot of what's been anticipated. What you're holding in your hand is a simple snapshot of what we also are looking forward to, what we are anticipating. And last week we spent some time looking at the tribulation period as it attached to this section of Matthew. It's very difficult to only look at Matthew 24 without tying in other parts of Scripture, especially from the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation 6, all the way through Revelation 16, there are three sets of judgments that come on this world. The first set is called the seal judgments. When that seven's done, the trumpet 
judgments roll out. When that set's done, then it says the bold judgments sort of roll out. And each set of judgments gets increasingly severe. It gets increasingly catastrophic in our world. And last week, we covered the seal judgments, which takes place in that first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And it's nightmarish. But what's interesting is the question I got more than any question I got this week was, get this, was, is it really that bad? That's the question I got. And I thought, really? Apparently I didn't do a very good job helping us understand what a big deal it is. Is it really that bad? And so I thought, you know what? Let's look and see what Scripture has to say about that. So Revelation chapter 6, verse 15 says this, and it says this right after the sixth seal judgment. So right before the seventh happens. It says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, just fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, exclamation point. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? And I thought, that's a very interesting picture of Jesus, because if I was to ask you right now, bring up in your mind a visual image of what you think Jesus looks like. And if you're anything like me, I saw way too many Easter pageants as a kid growing up in the church. And I always saw bathrobe hug me Jesus. I never saw like this guy. Like, that's what I saw. I saw he rolls out in the bathrobe. Everyone wants to give him a big hug. Everyone's love and kumbaya singing around fires. That's what I kind of saw. But right here, in this picture from Revelation, what they're saying is, hide me. Hide me from him who sits on the throne. Hide me from the face of him who, whose wrath is coming on us of the Lamb. Hide me from that wrath. Most people don't ever talk about that Jesus. We tend to really like bathrobe hug me Jesus. I think we need to realize there's maybe more than one picture of Jesus in our Bibles. And while we find it unimaginable to be alive during this time, according to Matthew 24 verse 8, these seal judgments are just the sort of the beginnings of the birth pains. Like you haven't seen anything yet because the final three and a half years is going to get even worse. When I was in college at USF, I had a roommate by the name of David. And David, I remember talking to him about Jesus. He had a, a mom that was Jewish and he had a father that was agnostic. And I, and I asked him what he thought about Jesus as the Messiah. And what he said to me was, well, I'll tell you what, if he returns, then he is, so we'll find out. I thought, really? Like, really? And I thought, no, 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 no. You're going to roll the dice on this one? Like, if he returns, then we'll find out? Like, I thought, wow. And the more I've thought about that over the years, I thought, I can relate. I thought, do you know anybody like that who says, I'll deal with God later. Right now, I'm going to do my thing. I'll deal with God later, but right now, I'm going to do my thing. Like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'll deal with that when it happens. Well, when it happens, the Bible says two to three billion people die in the seal judgments. 
and it's about to get worse. And I thought, later? How you know you got a later? Like, I'm not sure you understand what's going on here. The book of James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. What he's saying is, you who've got all your vacations planned out, you who go, I've got a two-year plan, a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, you who've got your whole life calendar out, you need to listen up. Verse 14, why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Psalm 144 says that man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. That makes me feel about this big, doesn't it? Like I'm nothing but a passing shadow. Maybe that's the point. Oh, the arrogance of humanity, right? That's what I see there. That we would somehow say to the sovereign creator of the world, God, you know what? I'll deal with you later. I'm going to send you to voicemail. Like, that's kind of what we're thinking. Like, I'll just deal with you later. Are you kidding me? This is the God of the universe who spoke the world into existence, and you're sending him into voicemail? You're just going to kick it down the road a little bit? Psalm 32 says, Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. What you need to understand is, in this church age, before we're taken to be with him at the rapture, there's an issue of grace. Right now, we are experiencing two kinds of grace. We are experiencing common grace, and we are experiencing God's special grace, his efficacious grace. But when we're taken to be with him, if you don't know Jesus and you enter into the tribulation period, it's not grace anymore, it's wrath. It's massive, massive wrath. And the only solution to that wrath is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't wear red like first service said because I'm bringing a message of hellfire and brimstone. That's not what I'm doing this morning. But I would be an unfaithful pastor if I wasn't honest with you about what the text says. We can't skip this even if culture says it's unpopular, even if culture doesn't like it or culture doesn't agree with it, my job as your pastor is to tell you what it says, and that's what it says. So with that in mind, and all the joy that comes with this, right? Let's look at Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 15. This is what it says. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So what he's saying here is, this is a pivot point right here, that the pivot is the first set of seal judgments has happened, so we're going to pivot and the trumpet judgments are about to take place. Verse 16 says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers! Exclamation point. Pray, oh, pray that your flight might not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. 
What he's saying is basically, you need to make sure you've done your jumping jacks. You better <clears throat> all stretched out, right? You better have your best Nike running shoes on. Because when this stuff happens, you're not going to have time to go back to your house and grab anything. You're not going to have time to go back to your house and grab your purse or, or pack a day pack for the travels. You're not going to be able to do any of this. When this happens, it's going to be ugly and it's going to happen really, really quick. So you better go and you better go right now. The next set of judgments is about to happen. But before it does, Revelation 8 says there is silence in heaven. And I read a bunch of commentators, and it's really odd. Most of them agree it's going to be about 30 minutes. And I thought, how do you know it's 30 minutes? No one could answer that question, but that's what they kind of say. They're going, it's going to be about 30 minutes. And, and I was more interesting, like, what's happening during that 30 minutes? And Scripture says that it's quiet before the trumpet judgments arrive because all heaven is pondering the wrath that's about to be revealed. All of heaven is going, oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Like for 30 minutes. That's all they're saying is, oh, and that's coming too. And these trumpet judgments go something like this. The first trumpet judgment, a third of the earth is destroyed. A third gone. That's just the first one. The second trumpet, a third of the sea is destroyed. The third trumpet, a third of the water sources are defiled. Side note, uh, we can go about three days without water. So there's that. And that's what's happening. The fourth trumpet, it says that the sun and the moon and the stars are all significantly darkened. Now, last week in the seal judgments, we had all sorts of upheaval in the heavens. Now, what's left all gets darkened. And then after those four trumpets, look at what Revelation 8 says happens. It says, as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Remember, I told you what woe meant because Jesus said woe to the Pharisees. Woe to you, brood of vipers. Woe to you, snakes. Here he's looking at the people on the earth. Woe to you, the inhabitants of the earth, because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. That's not good. That's not good at all, because it's going to get worse. The fifth trumpet is increased demonic activity. And at the sixth is an army from the east invades. In Revelation 9, it says, The rest of mankind, who are not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons. They did not stop worshiping idols of gold and silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot hear or see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders. They didn't repent of their magic arts. They did not repent of their sexual immorality, and they did not repent of their thefts. People are just getting more and more calloused, it seems. And then that seventh judgment when that trumpet sounds, opens up the next seven judgments called the bowl judgments. 
And before we go there, I want to take a, a, a sideways turn because we've been talking about prayer all month. And do you remember when the disciples went to Jesus and said, teach me to pray? And what happened was Jesus looked at them and said, hey, pray this way. I want to give you a model for prayer. And he said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's how he starts. And he says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that last line there is very significant because think about what we're talking about right now. Is Jesus currently reigning? Yes. Is Jesus currently reigning on earth? No, not yet. So right now, we are living in an already, not yet, kingdom. That's where we live. We live in an already, but not yet kingdom. Because when Jesus ascended after the cross, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We say that in the Apostles' Creed. And yes, he is reigning, but is he reigning on earth? Not yet. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you pray that prayer, you are praying for the end times. I don't know that you know that. I don't know that everyone's ever told you what you're asking God for when you pray the Lord's Prayer. Because what happens is we begin to say the Lord's Prayer and we sort of go on like cruise control and we just sort of say it. And I'm like, do you realize what's happening? That what we're hoping for is that one day the kingdom of God that is reigning right now in glory will descend and reign on the earth. That's the thousand year millennial kingdom. That's what we're wanting. That's what we're waiting for. And that's what we're praying for in the Lord's Prayer. That when he returns, he will take back what's already his. I don't know if you've ever thought about the Lord's Prayer that way. In Revelation 11, verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So Jesus, when he returns, as he begins to establish his kingdom here on earth, these voices are all saying that, that the kingdom of this world would become like the kingdom of our God. That's what they're saying. And some of you are like, uh, okay, time out, Kev. I thought Jesus, like, was Lord. Oh, he is. But do you remember when Jesus was tempted back in Matthew chapter 4? We covered that in the 90s, right? <laughs> and so when we did that, when he rolls out there and he begins to talk to Satan, Satan looked at him and offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth as if they're Satan's to give. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He says, The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. There is this sense that when Jesus returns, he purchases back that which is already his. 
Because remember, it goes creation, it goes fall, and then it goes that the gospel redeems us. And so in the first coming of Christ, Jesus paid for our sin. That's what he did. In his first coming, he came and paid for our sin. That's what our Jewish brothers and sisters can't quite see in the first coming, is that he paid for our sins. In the second coming, Jesus establishes his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. You're praying for the end times. You didn't even know it. And this final set of judgments is what's called the bowl judgments. And they come in Revelation 16. And it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. That doesn't sound good, does it? Like, go pour out a bowl of wrath on somebody. And so that first angel, it says, went and poured out his bowl. And he poured out that bowl of wrath on all of the worshipers of the Antichrist. That's where it gets poured. And that second bowl gets taken and it gets poured out on the sea and it literally destroys everything in the oceans. Now, as a community that lives by the water, we think red tide's bad. <laughs> Could you imagine if everything in the Gulf and everything in all these canals, you go home today and it's just floating? That would smell terrible. It would be catastrophic on our world. Third, this bowl is poured out on all the water sources and they are completely destroyed and every river turns to blood. The fourth bowl is the scorching of the earth. I, you know, global warming, it's a mess, but this is catastrophic for the land and it's catastrophic for people, which means if you go outside, you're going to burst into flames and it's nothing like summers in Florida. This is like really like burst into flame kind of stuff. You've got you've to hide indoors or you will be burned up. Fifth bowl, darkness is poured out on the land and it says that the beast is destroyed. This is how bad it is. It says people gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. And so the sixth bowl gets poured out by an angel. And the bowl that's poured out is an army that comes in and a massive battle happens called Armageddon. The movies have stolen that name from Scripture. It is a catastrophic end times battle. This, a, this is a terribly terribly difficult. It is an intensely graphic section of our Bible. I tried to figure out how to explain to you how intense this is. I can't do it. Like if you're not overwhelmed, you might have issues. Because I'm like, this is serious stuff. This should move the church to tears. This is what's happening at the end times. And some of us are going, I feel like we're in the end times. I'm like, you think? Because this is a mess. But look at verse 22 of Matthew. It says, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. And that word elect there can be very difficult for people because as soon as someone says the word elect, 
you have to do, oh, Calvinism, like, do, do I choose God or does God choose me? And there's two camps. You know what the real answer is to that? And I'm going to prove it to you. The answer is yes. Do I choose God? Yes. Does God choose me? Yes. And I'll show you exactly how it happens through this text because that's the answer. And we can argue about it, but I, there's passages for both, and I want to show you how it goes together. Because what happens in our world today is people take their theology, their understanding of God, and they put them in silos. This is what I think God is. And then we say, because God is loving, and he's bathrobe hug me, God. Right? And then we say, this is my silo of man. That man is basically good. That man, you know what, we are born good, and then over time our parents teach us to sin, or whatever you want to say about that. And then we have another theology that's in a barrel over here that says, this is what I think about sin. And what we say about sin is, what's right for me might not be right for you, but what's wrong for me, you know, might not, you know, it's sort of relative. Sin is, you know, and it changes with culture. And the last thing is what our theology is of salvation. How are we made right with the God? And some of us go, you know what, pick one. They all lead to the same place. But the problem with having your theology in silos is your theology has to go together. And when I teach about theology, people always go, well, yes, I believe that. I'm like, oh, but do you? Because if you believe that God is sovereign, if you believe his name is Adonai, that means sovereign God, which you should say yes, because that's how he's referred to in Scripture. If you believe he is El Shaddai, God Almighty, which you should, because... That's what it says in Scripture. So if he's all-powerful, and he's all-knowing, and he's omnipresent, and all those omnis, and if you think that we are made in the image of another, and I am a finite being, I have a beginning and I have an end, he doesn't. And if I look and I begin to go, yes, that, that, that I am not him, I am different than him, and if sin is like, I'm dead in my sin, not like I'm dying. Like some people think they're floating out in the gulf, and this is sin, I'm floating out, and I'm about to drown, but then God rolls up in a boat and throws me a life raft. No, that's not what scripture teaches. You are like dead, dead. Like you are upside down on the bottom, you're still a little warm maybe, but you're starting to feed the creatures in the bottom. That's what's happened. You are dead, dead. And if that's the case, by God's incredible and undeserving grace, he breathes life into me and causes me to be born again. And that's what it means is, my salvation isn't my idea. Because up to me, I'd be dead, dead forever on the bottom of the ocean. And people are like, wait, are you saying that God chose to save me? Because like, I know me. And I'm not sure I would choose to save me. And you're telling me he chose to save me and he might not, I guess I don't know, choose my friend that's next to me over here? And when you ask that, I'd go, there you go. You're starting to get the gospel because the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him in love. That he predestined us to the adoption as sons. He predestined us to be daughters of the Most High King. That's what he did. He did it not on the basis of deeds that we've done in righteousness. He did it by his mercy. 
by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, he saved us and he called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his own purpose. And that's where we land in Romans chapter 9, verse 22, where it says, what if God, I love this when Paul says this, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, what if he bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did that? I mean, what if God, even though when we sinned, he could have just pulled out the cosmic gun and shot lightning and burst me into flames just like that? It's what I deserved. It's what I deserved. But what if he didn't do that and recognize that, yeah, Kevin, you're a hot mess, but you know what? Yeah, Kevin, you, you deserve destruction. But what if I endure with you in patience? What if I just hang in there for a minute with you? What if I do that? And I love when it's the but God statement. Yeah, he goes on to say, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory. What an incredible concept. So what this passage in verse 22 says is, unless it was for the sake of the elect, no one would have been saved. Destruction would have been complete. Had God not intervened by his grace, had God not intervened by his mercy, none would be left. The end times, we would all be dead, except for the elect for those he's chosen. So now the other half of the answer comes in Matthew 24, verse 23. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time so if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. He says, you're going to know it. When I show up, you're going to know it. Verse 28, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. And next week we're going to talk about the return of our king. And so as we land this plane here, the question is, why is this text here other than like to scare the pants off us, right? I mean, like, why is this here? Like, how, how is this going to happen? Because I think it's really important for us to ask that question. Well, first, I think it's important for us to understand that judgment is coming. Whether you like that or not, judgment's coming. Whether you agree with me or not, I think believers need to say, if you don't know all the details of it, judgment is coming. Because I think, honestly, as we look at our world today, we kind of look around and wonder, is there any justice in our world? Like, God, hello? Like, where are you? It seems like the bad people keep just getting more and more and more, and us good people, maybe, if you view it this way, that we, we don't get what's right. Like, I know people talk about God, but is God really a God who will intervene in our world as God? God, do you see all that's happening in my world? God, do you see all the injustice in our city, all the injustice all around the world? God, do you see it? 
And I want to assure you, justice will come, and judgment will come, and just like his word says, the world will be held accountable one day. And yet, by his grace, he is exercising incredible patience as we are storing up wrath for the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of our God. Every day, we're storing up wrath that's due us. That's a different way to look at tomorrow, isn't it? Monday morning at work. We're storing up wrath. Second, the judgment that's coming, hopefully you're going to do better than first service. I think you all might agree at this point, the judgment's going to be awful. Amen? Amen. Good, because first service is like, cricket, cricket. Right, yeah, it's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. I think we can all agree on that. Now, we might not all agree on the nuances of eschatology. I think we can agree it's terrible. So if you're someone who's like, eh, I'll figure it out later, like you might want to reconsider your position and rethink that because there is hope now. But what you need to understand is there is salvation in nothing else. You can look. And you can try. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name in heaven or on earth or under the earth by which we can be saved except through the name of Jesus Christ. That's it. Our governing authorities are not going to save us. When the judgment comes, politicians will have no power. When this rolls out, your money, your popularity, your muscles, your awesome looks, your fame, your family, whatever it is that you think right now is saving you cannot save you. There is one name in the heavens, on the earth, and under the earth, and that name is Jesus Christ, and there is no one else. And so, when it comes to this, he says, come to me. Come to me all who labor and are heavily laden down and I will give you rest. And some of you are saying, I thought God chose me. Yes, but you're just quoted Jesus where it says, I chose him. Yes, but what you have to keep in mind is that the only way for you to even have an interest in God whatsoever is that God by his grace has already begun to breathe life into you. And God's going, I'm breathing life into you. So respond to his divine initiative because the Bible says you were dead and dead people don't care about God. You know what dead people care about? Nothing. Because they're dead. That's why we're dead, dead. We're not worried. You're upside down. So if you're here today or maybe you're watching this online and you care about God, you should be encouraged. God is stirring in your heart and Jesus says, come to me. Come to me all who labor and who are heavily laden down and I will give you peace. And I think back over my life and if I'm really honest, this is going to pain my mom third service, but I can't remember other than one time when I came to know Christ, I can't remember any time that someone shared the gospel with me. I can't, I'm sure my Sunday school teachers did. I'm not saying they didn't. I'm not even saying the pastors that I grew up in the churches I was a part of. That I, I want to give them props. My mom probably did as well. But it wasn't until I was sitting in a, in a school auditorium 800 miles from St. Pete on a, on a mission trip as a 16-year-old punk kid that God, he just awakened my heart. So can I encourage you? 
Can I just beg you? Trust him while you can. Trust him while you can. 1 John 5 says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has got life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And so the question is, do you know Jesus? And I say that, I don't mean like, do you know about Jesus? Because our culture, lots of people like know about Jesus. Like, do you know Jesus? Is he, is he leading your life? Is he sitting on the throne of your life? And if that answer is no, I need you to know judgment is coming. It's what the Bible says. I'm not trying to scare you. I just need you to know and to never say again, no one ever told me. I'm telling you. All right? And the, all these witnesses, and it's recorded online. I'm telling you what it says. This is what the Bible teaches, and as literally as Christ fulfilled the prophecies of his first coming, he is going to literally fulfill the prophecies of his second. This is going to happen whether you agree or not, it doesn't matter. Whether you like it or not, it doesn't matter. And when you stand before him, he will simply look at you and say, did you know my son? Yes or no? And if you go, sort of, that means no. In the kingdom of God, sort of means no. So like I said last week, we have a blessed hope. And it's simply this. We have a redeemer. Church, we have a savior. Church, we have a, a healer. And we have a sanctifier. And church, whether you believe it or not, it does not matter or change the fact. And we have a coming king. Do you know him?